Resiliency Within with host Elaine Miller Karras is brought to you by Trauma Resource Institute Incorporated. Visit traumaresourceinstitute.com. Welcome to Resiliency Within, featuring your host, Elaine Miller Karras. In unprecedented times, our beliefs and well being are put to the test. When we take the things we've learned in life and look at challenges in a whole new way, we learn to develop resiliency, which can then be used to promote healing and personal strength. Now, here is Elaine Miller Karras. I'm Elaine Elaine Miller Karras, and this is Resiliency Within. My guest today is Mark Strauss, who will discuss his newly published memoir, One-Legged Mongoose, Secrets, Legacies, and Coming of Age in 1950s New York. The book documents two pivotal years of his childhood on Long Island, beginning with him being forced by his parents to leave public school and commute for hours a day to a yeshiva in Queens. Mark Strauss will share his unflinching look at child abuse in the home and his ability to rise above it. One-Legged Mongoose reminds us of the bonds between siblings, the power of family secrets, and the way we learn to protect ourselves by protecting each other. He chronicles the physical abuse at the hands of his mother and the eventful start of his adolescence, which included a battle with polio, a surgery requiring eye injury, and an almost fatal hit-and-run incident that happened to him. Um, He will um, also explore the anti-Semitism he encountered in public school, in the community at large, and even in the Boy Scouts. And and it's in the Scouts that lend the book its title, A Nod to a Campfire Story, about a half-man, half-mongoose that's almost the height of a full-grown man, and that Strauss and the other boys of Troop 300 are tasked at locating, as Strauss explains, I was willing to face it. I know all about monsters. Mark is a poet, a writer, a medical oncologist, an art collector who lives with his life, Livia, in Chappaqua, New York. He is the author of numerous scientific papers and articles on contemporary art and has published four poetry collections, including Not God, Stage Off Broadway. His poems and stories have appeared in Plowshares, Kenyan Review, and many other literary journals. Um, the Strausses founded Hudson Valley Mocha in Peekskill, New York, and Mark runs the Mark Strauss Gallery in New York City. It is just such an honor, Mark, to have you as my guest. And as we get started, I just want to welcome you. And I'm so happy. I just finished your book this morning. I was sharing to you with you in our green room before we started. And I have to tell you, there, there are moments in the book where I weeped. There are moments that um, I became so hopeful about the human spirit. I was personally so touched by your compassion, and I hope that we can talk more about that when just as a young child, you were faced with so much, and yet you were able to demonstrate, like, I guess it was like this this vein of compassion that I was just very touched by. So, let's kind of just get started. So, you're 10 years old when your book begins, and it goes on to chronicle just a year or two of your childhood. What made it such a pivotal um, bookworthy um, time. It, I was, um, my dad was an immigrant and came to the U.S. impoverished when he was 15 and went to work six, six days a week, 16 hours a day. And 
in his 20s, he opened his own little textile store in the Lower East Side. And he made a little money. He did what a lot of immigrants did. He bought a little house in Long Island. Uh, and then he went to work. And the school was atrocious. I spent kindergarten literally under the piano every day. Um, it, it was an awful experience. But uh, suddenly after five years of public school, he announces one day, starting September, you're going to be taking your little brother to a school in Queens, which would prove to be four hours of commute a day. And a, a, an ultra-religious school, and we weren't religious, so I didn't get it. And as far as I was concerned, we were probably going to some foreign world. And um, that's how the book starts, uh, getting ready to go to the school I didn't want to go to. <laughs> so, so I'm wondering, did you ever figure out why your father sent you to the school? I think so. I mean, he never said. That was typical. And I give a hint somewhere in the book. What I thought was, you know, he was not atypical of immigrants then. What did he want? He wanted to educate his kids. And he wanted us to do well, get into a good college. I mean, I think if he had one hope, my brother and I would be doctors. I mean, that's what people wanted back then. And, uh, and you, you and your brother did become doctors. We, we did. <laughs> yes. yes. He, he probably knew more than me. He was headed in that direction. <laughs> but, um, but I think, you know, in speaking to some of the other men he knew in the Jewish community, some of their kids weren't doing well. They weren't getting into good colleges. They certainly weren't getting into medical school. And I think he had this understanding. We needed, we needed a switch. Why an ultra-religious school? Generally, with not good secular studies, I don't know. Yeah. But that's, that, I think that was his thinking. Well, I was touched by your dad in the book, and, and I, I'm probably not going to say this correctly, so please correct it, but you, you made a statement that he, he spoke with his silence. Yes. And could you say more about that? Because he was such a constant presence in the book, and, and I kind of fell in love with him because he had suffered so much, and yet he had this vision for your family that was, was so uh, poignant. He really suffered as a kid, and of course, he hardly spoke about it. I, I got little bits and pieces from other relatives, but he was a kid whose mother died when he was three months old. Father remarries and then leaves to the U.S. when my dad is two. And my father literally starved. And he came here, not having gone to school past age 11, but obviously a very, very smart kid and made his way. And he had a focus. He had a focus. His, this is America. You, you, have to have, you have to have a family, do well by them and educate them. And that was his focus. But he was someone who never spoke about what he left behind. And once later on, he was looking through this book I didn't even know he had. And he's turning the pages 
and there's a group of teenagers taking a picture on benches, you know, three high. Yeah. And he's just looking at them, and he just said, all dead. And anybody who was left behind that he knew were killed. And leaving that behind and the kind of anti-Semitism he endured before he left is something, of course, that even I never experienced something like that. And I I think I knew it. In his store um, where he was selling textiles, mostly wholesale, he was an extraordinary salesman. He was loquacious. He was funny. He knew everybody. Once he walked out of there, he was quiet. Yeah. I talked him into letting me work in a store starting from the age of five. And I loved it. And I wanted to go as often as possible. And all the years I worked there until I graduated medical school, he never said, well, you're doing a great job or you made a mistake. Never one word in 20 years but that was okay because I knew, I knew what I was doing. And when we went back and forth, I was the only one that had access to him in a certain way. He would yell at the windshield and all his political opinions. And I think the windshield and I learned a great deal. Well, and so the sound like those were special moments with him that you got to see this other side of him that the others didn't get to see. I think my sister and brother missed out. Yeah. Well, there's also something about him too. He seemed to be such a man of principle and and values. And I mean, even having certain family members be part of the store that they didn't really weren't carrying their weight, but there was that, well, their family. He uh, he carried a few people more more than is in the book. His side of the family, my mother's side of the family, and you know sometimes the resentment came out. Um, it was funny because I worked with my one of my mother's brothers in the basement all the time, and I learned day one he would take long naps. <laughs> Uh, for some reason, I, I never squealed on him. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, that, I guess, is the other thing. I want to kind of highlight some of the things in the book. Um, you had polio as a child. Yes. You know, you had that, you were, you know, hit by a car. Badly. Um, badly. Um, you know, you don't talk, I didn't say it in the, but you had a beloved dog that was poisoned by someone. Um, you had a lot of, and your mother, um tragically, um, really um, abused you physically. And yet, in reading the book, and I think this is the, my kind of my hallmark question that I want to ask you, is that um, what was it about you that you could still have compassion towards your brother, protect him, that you could be this person that becomes an oncologist? You know, what was it that you were able to not be you know, beaten by, by life, by those experiences and create what you've created in your life, Mark, it really is quite extraordinary. Well, thank you. I I don't know how to answer that because I do know, I remember even now, the moment my younger brother, Stephen came home from the hospital 
And we still lived in Brooklyn uh, just for a few more months. And he was this little itty-bitty thing in a blue blanket. And my mother puts him down on the kitchen table. And I was looking at this helpless kid knowing I had to protect him. Hmm. And I can't explain more than that, really. (laughs) Well, I mean, again, there's that kind of inherent compassion and I don't know, I'm going to just call it goodness, that you were, you were beaten and some awful things happened to you. And yet the way that you talk about Stephen in, in, the, in your book, the way that you loved him, the way that you protected him. Um, do you want to say a little bit about Stephen? I know that, that he did die in 2007. But um, all I can say from the book is that, he, I mean, I, I, I love Stephen too. <laughs> and <laughs> from reading your book, I love him. So, just tell us a little bit more about the man that he became and he, he that relationship. Was, he was um, he was a little bitty thing so long. Later, he was taller than me, bigger than me, but it took him a long time. He was he was a late developer, and he was just one of these kids who was a magnet for bullies. Uh, he was fearful. From the very earliest age, he knew I was being beaten. And I have to believe that made him so fearful. I mean, he had every reason to believe it was going to be him. And these were horrendous beatings. And, you know, we started, kids in the neighborhood found him. And it was because he was little and he was scared and there was anti-Semitism. And then he started school, and it was really bad. And um, I would find out anybody who touched him, but I had to beat up those kids when Stephen wasn't around because he was embarrassed. So I really, um, I really tried to protect him, but still kids would get to him. I thought when we moved to Queens, it was supposed to be dangerous, that this would go on, but mostly I don't think it did. And um, I think he found a group of kids who were like-minded and bookworms. And uh, he was a kid who needed shock, you know, and starting at age seven and eight, we'd be on the train and I bought him Scientific American. And my God, he understood all that stuff. So... I knew that if he was protected, he had the capability of being really special. And he became one of the great scientists in the United States and impeccably honest. And he ran virology at the National Institutes of Health many years. And then in the last six or so years, he was the first director of the Institute of Complementary and Alternative Medicine. He was just a great guy. Well, and when um, you say that he was a great guy and, and having that relationship between the two of you, you know, sometimes when there's a lot of trauma in families, there's kind of a, a sibling trauma bond that happens. Do you think that the two of you had a, a really strong bond during? Well, we, well, we did, but um, my brother had difficulty with that bond. Yeah. And some of it was because 
uh, imagine he went to school behind me always three years. And when he'd come into class, the teachers were afraid they were going to get another Mark Strauss. I was trouble. And my brother was quiet. And he didn't want to make any trouble. <laughs> so there was a wake that you left that affected him. God, apparently there was a big wake. But, you know, wherever he went, there was this big presence in front of him. And then, you know, he knew in a way I didn't appreciate. Learning came very quickly to me. And, and for him, that was a burden as well. He wanted, he wanted to do something in his own right. And, you know, there was a moment in my career when I started in oncology and academically things went very quickly. Stephen was slower, but he did things his own way and became truly a great scientist. So, so I, I, I'm so interested about you both becoming doctors. I mean, were you, would you talk about, I mean, didn't you write a paper together as well? I mean, did you do well, some things together? His first paper, uh, he wrote with me, and I, I had this idea. I was at the National Cancer Institute in a fellowship, and I had an idea for study, and I needed somebody who could do some of the assays that I couldn't do, and I knew Stephen could do it. And he did them, but we were starting to write the paper. He was so annoying. He'd go through 18 drafts just the way he was. And I'd say, get on with it. <laughs> we don't have forever. But um, that was his first paper. And he was always that particular, which I valued in him enormously. Well, and, and I think you, you, you mentioned in the book that he, 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 he um, wrote like 400 papers. I mean, like hundreds of papers. He, he did and um, didn't surprise me. No. Well, so, um, I mean, I, I just love knowing about Stephen and the work that he did in his life and also the relationship the two of you have had and the love that you, you had for him and I'm sure still have for him, even though he's not yeah. presently on the planet I, I think the worst phone call, I mean, you know, I, I'm, I was a cancer doctor my, most of my adult life, and I've taken too many terrible phone calls. I think the worst one was when my brother was 58, and I was, we were in our kitchen, and I got a call, and he said, I only want to talk to Mark. I only want to talk to Mark. I got on the phone. I heard from his voice. I was about to hear something terrible. Yeah. And he told me about his headaches, and he just decided, okay, he was going to go for an MRI, and he read the report to me. And in that minute, I knew, and I knew he knew, he would die of a brain cancer. Yeah. And I stepped up, and I participated in his care. And so – in the last years of his life that you, that he was, um, that you were with him, um, was, is there anything you want to share about the relationship of helping him journey through his, his um, cancer diagnosis? He was, he was a kid who was so afraid of everything as an important doctor, scientist with brain cancer in charge of an institute. 
I would have to say he showed the most courage I've seen in my life. Hmm. I, I don't even know where it all came from. He started, he started giving talks once a week on death and dying. <laughs> and within weeks, the room was filled. And what he did, I could have never done. Yeah. I've never seen it before. I've seen lots of courage in my life. And he saw this as something that would be, you do the best you possibly can for treatment. And he lived in Washington, I was in New York, and I would fly down for all the critical tests. He wanted me to see the tests before he was told. So, and so even with all of this, you were still his big brother. You were the cancer doctor, but you were still his big brother. Definitely. Yes. Well, Mark, I'm, thank you for bringing Stephen into the, our conversation today because I think he's in many of our hearts and I'm sure our listeners are hearing the love that you had for him. And it sounds like he loved you very much as well. So I'm wondering if we can maybe segue into talking a little bit more about your parents. Um, they, of course, are, big, are major players within your book. So what else would you like us to, to know about, about your parents. We've talked already a little bit about your dad. Haven't talked so much about your mom. I don't know if you want to, whatever you want to say right now about them. Sure. I, I think for your listeners, it might be helpful to know that the book is narrated by the kid I was. And I did not write it from the adult voice. And it was something I couldn't do any other way because I know too much now. But I also remembered everything when I was back in that time. And my mother was an enormous presence, brilliant woman who um, grew up during the Depression, left high school just before she graduated when she was 15. So she got a job because the family had no money coming in. So she went to work. And she was also on her way possibly to becoming one of the great pianists in the world. And she gave it up. And even in the book, it was a mystery to me why she absolutely had to give it up. And um, she had all this potential that, you know, years later she saw um, even her granddaughters be able to do things today, women be able to do things that were enormously unusual back in her time, you know, and only changed over time. She was really proud of the women that came after, but she never got to do those things. And, um, you know, some of it, I never understood. You see as a kid in the book, I didn't quite understand it. But she was somebody who is violent, and her violence was all directed at me. And she didn't direct it towards Stephen or your sister Miriam. It was it was directed no. towards you. No, and she she almost beat Stephen badly, and I intervened. I really felt he almost couldn't survive that if it happened. So I I know that. Um, from the book, your mom never talked to you, never asked for forgiveness, but she did talk to your daughter about it. Do you want to say anything about that? 
Well, I didn't even know about that for a long time. And um, my daughter, Serena, um, became a lawyer. And out of law school, she became an assistant DA in the Bronx, and she prosecuted crimes against kids. It mm. was a really tough experience. Oh, my. And after six years, she wrote a terrific book called Bronx DA. And in that book, I read that my mother told her, and that's one of the reasons Serena went into that field to prosecute crimes against kids. Never said it to me. Oh, my goodness. And so did your daughter feel like there was some kind of contrition that there's, I did this to your, to your father or, or not? I don't think so. I think that she probably felt that she had something valuable that she could do. And some of it came from understanding her own father's history. She loved my mother. And the two of them really were in cahoots. They got along. My, <laughs> my, daughter, my daughter was the only one later on that could pull stunts with my mother. My daughter would purposely hide things in the mattress when she slept over there because she knew my mother would go nuts looking for it. <laughs> well, Serena sounds like she's quite a character in her own right. No character. <laughs> yes. Well, so... Um, I, what I'd like to, to also say right now to our listeners, you know, we're talking about some different, difficult subjects, child abuse, and many of our listeners may have experienced this themselves, or maybe, maybe our listener may be thinking, I wonder if that child down the street is being victimized by someone. So I just want to bring our listeners' attention. There is an organization called childhelphotline.org that you could um, go to online to get help. But also, if you know that there's a child that is in danger, if you contact 911, there are emergency personnel there that can help that child get out of danger. And also, there is a hotline, um, 1-800-422-4453, where you can anonymously talk to someone about your concerns. And also, if you're an adult, like many of us have experienced trauma, as um, Mark has, as I have, is that you could also contact the Trauma Resource Institute, our sponsor, and they could also give you referrals to where you can get some help. And we'll talk more with Mark about that, about getting help, about, about we're going to talk a little bit about hope and how <laughs> we have some, we've had some conversations about hope before the show started. And I want to share that conversation with all of you um, and the connections that Mark made about his lived experience. Because ultimately, as I said to him when I first spoke with him today, your book was so hopeful about what happens to us as human beings and as children and how um, we don't have to be defined like adversity is not our destiny. And I think that your book is a, certainly an example of that. So we will be back in just a few moments and we will continue our conversations with Mark Strauss. And I want to have everyone go buy this book, The One-Legged Mongoose. And it's available on Amazon. Um, and I know there's other booksellers that have it too. And we'll talk more about it at the end of the show as well. Um, it was one of, and also I listened to part of it, by the way, on my walks in the morning. So I have the, I have the written one and the, and, and the listening, but the listening, the, did you, I don't know if you were the, the voice, but the person who you picked was perfect. Oh my gosh. I loved listening to the, um, 
the uh, audio as well. So we will be we'll be back in a we'll be back in a few moments with more with with Mark Strauss. The Trauma Resource Institute is a nonprofit organization cultivating trauma-informed and resiliency-focused individuals and communities worldwide. Our mission is to take people from despair to hope. We believe in a world where every child and adult has the capacity to recover from highly stressful and traumatic experiences. Check out iChill, our free app that helps you learn the wellness skills of the community and trauma resiliency models. Go to TraumaResourceInstitute.com for more information. Elaine Miller-Karras' book, Building Resiliency to Trauma, The Trauma and Community Resiliency Models, is available on Amazon.com. The book is about how to cultivate resiliency during and in the aftermath of traumatic experiences. The book also addresses body-based trauma interventions combined with psychoeducation about the biology of trauma and resiliency. Elaine also offers personal consultations. For more information, you can contact her at elaine at resiliencywithin.com. These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. Elaine Miller-Karras co-founded the Trauma Resource Institute, Incorporated. The Institute provides trainings on the models Elaine developed, the Community Resiliency Model, or CRM, and the Trauma Resiliency Model, or TRM. If you would like more information about the Trauma Resource Institute or how to participate in trainings, visit the Institute's website at traumaresourceinstitute.com. That's traumaresourceinstitute.com. Trauma Resource Institute. Build resilience. Awaken hope. Your life. Your health. Your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. This is Resiliency Within with Elaine Miller-Karis. To reach the show during our live broadcast, please call in to 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to elaine at resiliencywithin.com. Now, back to this week's show. Welcome back. I'm here with um, the author and poet Mark Strauss. His wonderful book, um, The One-Legged Mongoose, has, has recently been um, released, and you can, you can buy it and listen to it on Amazon. And we are here to hear more from, um, from Mark about his, his experiences that he highlights in the book. And the next question I really want to ask you, uh, Mark, is the title of the book, um, it's, quite, it's a little bit unusual. So can you tell us the significance and the meaning of the, well, of the title? The good news I didn't know until after it was published, no one else has ever had that title. So if you Google it, you only get me. <laughs> okay. <laughs> one, one-legged mongoose um, 
comes from a chapter a little bit later in the book. Uh, this is two years. I'm now in the second year. I'm in this new school, and it's almost winter. And my mom decides I should join the Boy Scouts. And I couldn't imagine why. I'm commuting 24 hours a week, and um, I had no interest. But off I go to this meeting, and in order to become a tenderfoot, you have to go on a camping trip. So on a freezing weekend, we go out to this site in Long Island. And after the tents pitched and they have their cookout, the troop leader tells us that it's really lucky that they were able to come this year because the park has been closed for several years because a one-legged mongoose roamed the park and killed people. And it's half man, half mongoose, and only one person may have ever survived seeing it. And But, you know, no one's seen it for six years, so we're probably okay. You can see some of the boys, one vomited immediately. <laughs> what is so, the purpose of saying such a, such a story? Oh, my gosh. Okay. Well, I mean, it's what we, it's hazing, isn't it? It's hazing and it's horrible hazing with young boys and, and grown men doing this anyway. Yeah, That's probably another story, but go ahead, continue. Plenty of hazing. Yes. And so then he says, but we're Troop 300. Why don't we all go out and look for it? And if we see it, you know, we're going to be famous. So we get divided up into groups of four kids and I go out with one guy but I already had a terrible run-in with him that day. And we get out to this trail, and he said, well, who wants to volunteer to go down the end of the road where that light is and look for the mongoose? So I put my hand up. I thought, I'll go. And that's, that's the title of the chapter, Looking for the One-Legged Mongoose. And so when you went, can you say a little bit more about the story of it, though? Because I think that's also very powerful. Well, um, you know, I, I thought the odds there's a mongoose is infinitesimal. But I realized even a tiny bit of thought that there is such a thing, you're going to be undone. You know, I, I had learned that you can't give in to fear. So I went down the road and I come to the end and then I hear a noise in the bushes to the right and I have a little flashlight and I go in and then the noise gets worse and I see something that looks like the back of a man's head and probably a man's height and I can't tell, maybe it has four legs, I just can't tell. And then it scurries off. That sounds really scary to me. Was it, were you scared? Not that I knew. Huh. But, but I was. You know, the way I handled fear is I wouldn't give in to it. But maybe it would only be much later that I realized that I really was scared. You know, my way of dealing it was to suppress it. So I, I would have tried to catch him if I could. <laughs> and so when you came back 
and they asked the all the children whether they had seen it. What what, what happened then? Because something happens after that. Well, it was it was it was awful because um, one, I mostly didn't believe there was such a thing, but then I saw this thing that uh, not clearly at all. And so finally, they just kept pushing me and pushing me. This one guy in particular, I had this fracas with, and he said, well, did you see it? What didn't you? And I, and I kept saying, I saw something, I'm not sure. And I said, okay, I saw it. And then came the real hazing when he said, well, boys, every year we do this. Of course, there's no mongoose. And there's always someone who claims they saw it and they didn't. And of course, it was his way of hazing me even more. And I felt so belittled. And I thought, I've learned a terrible lesson today. And so afterwards, did you ever have to go back to the Boy Scouts? Oh, I wouldn't go back. Yeah. And so what do you think is the lesson that you learned? I think, I think the lesson, well, it was hard to be that self-aware at age 11. I think, I think the lesson is to really exercise a lot of care before you say something. You know, it wasn't just a matter of giving in to this, um, to this story that was made up, this folktale. It had to do with being very careful about that what you say you know is accurate, not go past that. Yeah. Well, and, and there is a journey in the book um, that I think this is connected to, maybe if you can illuminate us a little bit, because when we start out with the beginnings of the book um, and you talk about your other, um, your other school, that you had to really fight to protect Stephen um, and yourself and I mean, there was physical violence and there was physical violence towards you at home. So, but then there's this, this concept, this, this um, lesson that you just illuminated, but there's also the, the continued journey within these two years where you're, you're studying, um, you're learning scholarship, you're reading more books, you're, there's been, there's a, there's a, it seems like there's a transformation that's happening. Could I say, use that word? Um, sure. Yes. And so could you talk a little bit about that? Um, I was a little kid in Long Island. I became a veteran street fighter. Um, you know, consciously, I thought it's because they're picking on Stephen. And any, anybody who went near him, anybody who taunted him, they were going to get beat up. And I got really good at it. And um, there was just one time that was horrific in the book where he was beaten brutally and I just wasn't around and I couldn't forgive myself. But I beat up the kid so badly who did it that I almost, I almost lost the realization of what I did. I couldn't remember it all. It became this hazy thing that I was so angry that I didn't even know as a certainty what I did. Yeah. And when we moved to this school in Queens, I thought it was just going to get worse and worse, but it didn't. It was quite the opposite. And 
we came to a place where some people valued me in other ways. They valued the fact that I read all these books. They valued my ability to learn. They gave me other assignments. And slowly I began to realize that I wish I wasn't in all these fights. I wish there was another way. I wish that it wasn't so much a part of my life. And that became clearer and clearer as we come to the end of the two years. And one of the books, I mean, besides The Old Man in the Sea, which was so important to me, this heroic figure who was just an impoverished fisherman, um, was another book where um, the red badge of courage that I had read. And here, the main character feels terrible that he ran from a battle and he was saving his life and really it was hopeless. And he wishes that he had blood or a scar so he would have that badge of heroism. And later in the book, uh, there's another battle with the Confederates and he runs in with a flag right in front of the enemy and puts himself in harm's way. And I thought, well, that's me. That's you. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, one of the things I think in the journey, you know, when we talk about, you know, sometimes we say if we grow up with the kind of violence that you grow up with as a child, then we become we kind of swallow that and then we perpetrate upon others. But there seems to be something that like us, almost like a, a switch that got turned in a different direction. And we talk about, we've talked a lot of, in my show about adverse childhood experiences. And there's all this research that says if we have four more, we're more um, at risk of many things, not only health conditions, but mental health conditions. But also I think that, you know, we can be more at risk of the kinds of things that we do to others. Um, but there was mitigating factors, I think, in, in your life that I also want to highlight, not only your own, this own capacity for compassion, that we see it even when you were defending your brother and there was violence towards others, but also the, the relationships with others. And I want to highlight that because you talk about the librarian. And, when, and can you share that story about when she retired, you know, her um, conversation with you? I, I was five and I switched from this little West Hempstead annex to the bigger library. I used to bike to Hempstead and this librarian, Mrs. Mahoney, really took me under her wings. So every week she would prepare two books for me to read. And um, I, you know, I just loved it. At one point when I'm sick in bed with polio, she was thinking it's time for me to read plays like Ibsen and, you know, Tennessee Williams. Imagine that. <laughs> that she, you know, that she took that time and so much to me. But then near the end of the book, I go back to the Hempstead Library and she said that she really was hoping she would have a chance to tell me herself that after 40 years, she's retiring. And I'm one of the people that made a difference in her life that she's really going to miss. And um, we're still talking about the books and the bestsellers out there. And, and I tell her, I loved all the books, except those Bronte books were boring. 
<laughs> for a young man at that age, yes, those Bronte books. Violent. Too much romance. <laughs> no killing, no balloons on island. But um, what a difference she made in my life. Yeah. And nobody knew I was doing this. I mean, I never talked about it. Nobody at home knew I was going to Hempstead. I was going by age six, three towns away. Well, you had a rich literary life by the age of 11, my goodness. But then yeah. there's also the relationship with the rabbi, you know, because you said, you said to me that he got you. And can you, you know, how he helped you during those times? Well, I, I, I get brought to meet him when I didn't want to go to that school. And, you know, he tells, he, he talked to me and wasn't looking at my mother. He was talking to me. And he was saying, you know, I'm really interested that you read these books. You know, this is not going to be so easy because you don't know Hebrew. So you have to be tutored this summer. And then if this Mrs. Eliasson said, you've learned enough, we'll take you. On the one hand, I didn't want them to take me. But he knew he was going to take me. I just didn't know. When I got there, and one of my first experiences was... I got kicked out of class because I wasn't wearing a religious shawl under my shirt. Like, I didn't know anything about this. And I, I go in there and he said, ah, so you're not wearing this religious shawl. I said, no, Rabbi Charney. He says, well, you know, I really don't care if you do or if you don't. It has nothing to do with being a good Jew. But here's what's going to happen. If you don't do it, you're going to go back to class. You're going to get kicked out. Then you're going to be in here, and then it's going to go back and forth. I'd rather you come in here, and we talk about books, and we talk about other things. And he got it. And so that's what you did. Well, I didn't want to disappoint <laughs> him. Now, and so wasn't there also a teacher that also took an interest oh. in you? Oh, my God, the first teacher, Ethel Sonnenberg. I remember exactly what she looked like. This is some I don't know how, why I was this, like, special thing that showed up in her class. And she'd give me more and more books. And the next year, it happened again. And this, you know, I've watched what's happened with my grandkids schooling and it doesn't always happen needless to say no it doesn't i you know i read moby dick when i was nine and ten and she took me seriously and I so, said a, lot, a lot about yeah. where. <laughs> well and i also you know you talk about Stephen and his intellect uh i think we could also probably say that your intellect was pretty amazing and i imagine when your teachers with the rabbi with the librarian they saw your intellect and they saw your hunger for learning that must have been inspiring for them to see this this kind of scrappy kid and and having this hunger and being able to talk in the ways that you did and to be able to maybe maybe influence you in some ways in the conversation? Maybe, I don't know. Maybe that happened. I think I would have come out necessarily the other side without them. Yeah. And so, and I, and I really want to emphasize that to our listeners is that 
the adversity that you experience and the harshness. And yet there were these people, these individuals in your life that you encountered that really did help to deflect some of that, that showed you a different way. And when that happens to us as children, it gives us another thing. What else is true? Yes, there is this, but then this is also true. Now, you told me about another person in your life that I also maybe think right now might be a person to highlight because he died when you were very little, but that was your grandfather. My grandpa, Max, redhead. Uh, (laughs) And you were a redhead? Yeah. (laughs) My brother, my mother, we, we were, I had bright red hair in a town where we were the only redheads, almost the only Jews. And my grandpa, Max, um, we, we left Brooklyn. He lived two blocks away. So, I mean, I would go see him all the time. But now he would take three buses really to come see me. And then we would walk all day. And my mother denied he was fat, but he was really fat. And <laughs> bald head and sweating. But here was somebody who wanted to hear everything I did. I told him everything except about my pea shooter. (laughs) Oh, my. I mean, he just, when you talk about him, I mean, really, you have such fond memories of him and you're only five years old. And again, those kind of relationships are, you know, are embedded in our heart, our soul, that you could, you know, shift your memory to him every now and then when things were tough. Do you think you did that? Yeah, he was, um, for me, he was pure kindness. And, you know, having that in my life with everything else going on, I think that also saved me. Yeah. So that gets to my next question. Um, And that is, um, it actually was a question you sent me, and I'm going to read it. Um, One of your chapters ends with the words, hope makes no difference. I know that. What was it in a reference to? What was it in reference to? And how, how did you have such pessimism or should we say such wisdom at such a young age? And so I want to talk a little bit about this because we talked a little bit before the show. So let me know a little bit what that means. Well, it's the way I walled things off, I'm sure. You know, as far as I, as I really felt that... Um, Hope wasn't reality. You know, reality was my mother didn't stop beating me. Hoping she would stop wasn't reality. You know, reality was um, if I was in a fight, it was how accomplished I was. You know, I can't hope I'm going to win. I have to become good enough to win. And in some ways, you know, that was proved to be good. In some ways, it wasn't healthy. Um, when, I was, um, when I was hit by a car, I was really badly hurt. And when I woke up and all these people were around me, I, you know, I'd been unconscious. And I woke up and the ambulance was there and all the lights. And I wiggled my fingers and I wiggled my toes. I thought okay, if I'm alive, I'm going to make it. That was my reality. And, you know, and so kind of what I said to you um, was, as I finished reading your book, your book was one of the most hopeful books I'd read. And so that's why I was curious about your definition. And you said something to me that you didn't start connecting those dots. Could you, could you share with what, 
what dots have you connected about hope? Well, um, it seemed to, I became an oncologist and um, it, it's, it's strange. It's typical. I had no conscious plan to do anything like that. It's like I backed into it and I'm so lucky in my life I did it because I was able to spend so many years of my life doing something I cared about. And doing it really as best I was capable of doing it. But even as an oncologist, the way I functioned was just to make sure I read voluminously. I crossed every T, dotted every I, took complete history, took a complete physical. For me, it wasn't magic. It was work to make sure that I left nothing on the table in terms of what I might be able to do to help somebody. So still there was, I couldn't consciously think, I hope they get better. It's like, what can I do? Yeah. What can I do to get them better? So I I understand that now about the question and your answer. It's about the action. Because you couldn't really be tied to the outcome because you didn't know what the outcome would be, but you knew that you could do whatever you could do to try to get there. You know, Mark, as I'm seeing, we only have a couple minutes left together, which has gone by so fast. I will definitely have to have you on again. Maybe after the first of the year, we can do part two. But I don't want to leave without um, what do you want people to take away from your book? If you could say it in a minute or so, because I think it's an an important statement about child abuse and what you hope about keeping things not hidden? Well, I think the book is unusual because I was able to write it as it happened to the kid. It was, in a way, I'm almost detached from it. It was his story. When I was there, I remembered everything. And it's not the adult point of view. And I think for readers being brought into the kid's life and being brought into the details makes it a very different book. And I really hope people think it's well-written because I care about the writing of it. Well, and I wonder why that would be the Mr. Well-Read Person of the Planet by the age of 10. <laughs> that doesn't mean I can write well. Well, I, I, well of course, um, I don't I will say that I think you can, but that's only one person's opinion. But I'm sure many more uh, uh, schooled people about literary abilities will probably say the same thing. But Mark, I just want to, I appreciate you being on the show and I appreciate your story. And you have really illuminated for us to me what what is part of my life, which is what else is true. That in spite of all that you've went through, that, you know, even choosing to be an oncologist, that you would have to lean into some pretty dark places with people and yet continue to study and try to bring whatever you could in action to help them. And I think you're going to help many people um, by the reading of this book. And I just want to remind people that they can get this this wonderful book called The One-Legged Mongoose on Amazon. Um, and your website is your name, isn't it? Just markstrass.com? Mark, 
jstrauss.com. Oh, excuse me, markjstrauss.com. Jstrauss.com is my art gallery. Okay, and you have an art gallery. That's probably what we need to talk about next when I have you come back. And I just want to remind our listeners too, not only what else is true, but childhelphotline.org. You can get help there for children who may be suffering. So thank you so much again, Mark. And listeners, we will be back next week um, for some more illumination of the hopeful things that happen in our lives. And as we, we celebrate Thanksgiving, maybe, may you all be blessed. Until Thanks. next week. Thank you, Mark. Thank you so much for joining us this week for Resiliency Within. Please tune in again next Monday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time and 1 p.m. Pacific Time for another edition featuring your host, Elaine miller Karras on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. We'll talk again soon. Resiliency Within with host Elaine miller Karras is brought to you by Trauma Resource Institute Incorporated. Visit TraumaResourceInstitute.com.